This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Matthew 1, starting in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Good morning. My name is Josh, uh, one of the pastors, so glad to uh, be able to be here with you this morning on this second Sunday of Advent. And you know, I know it's kind of sophisticated or whatever to be cynical about the Christmas season, Uh, but I have to tell you, I love it. I I love pretty much everything about this time of year. I love the food. I love the lights. I I love the parties, I love the gift giving, I love the music, both the Christmas carols that we sing, but also the the silly songs as well. I love Christmas movies, uh, especially Christmas Story, and um, uh, well, so many Elf, and It's a Wonderful Life, and so many others as well. And I love hearing the kids sing, like we just did this morning. And uh, and I love Christmas pageants as well. Uh, Gervais Fimm was a school teacher before becoming a best-selling author, and uh, so he got to see and participate in a lot of school nativity plays over the years, and he writes about these in one of his books. The book is called A Wayne in the Manger, Wayne like the name, Wayne, A Wayne in the Manger, Uh, but this is how he describes how one of these uh, nativity plays went. Mary was on stage first, played by a six- or seven-year-old girl. Interstage right, a tall, gawky, self-conscious 10-year-old boy playing the angel Gabriel. Mary said, Who are you? I'm the angel Gabriel. Well, what do you want? Are you Mary? Yes. I come with tidings of great joy. Sort of deadpan, you know, flat voice. What, she said? I've got some good news. What is it, Mary asked? You're having a baby. I'm not. You are. Who says? God. And he sent me to tell you. Well, I don't know nothing about that. It'll be a boy, and he'll become great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, the King of Kings. What if it's a girl? (laughs) It won't be. You don't know. It might be. It won't, because God knows about these things. 
Oh, Mary said. And you will call him Jesus. I don't like the name Jesus. Can I call him something else? No. What about Gavin? I've always liked the name Gavin. (laughs) No, you have to call him Jesus, otherwise you don't get him. (laughs) All right, then. I don't know what I'm going to tell Joseph, though. Tell him it's God's. Okay, said Mary, smiling now for the first time. And as Gabriel leaves the stage, Joseph comes alongside and says, Hello, Mary, have you had a good day? Oh, yes, pretty good. She's nodding dramatically. I'm having a baby, and it's not yours. (laughs) It's actually not too bad, is it? Uh, Capturing what it might have been like in the text that we have before us this morning. For all Mary's obvious courage and bravery and faith, there had to be a good deal of confusion. And poor Joseph, it would have looked to him like Mary had been unfaithful. It took an angel in a dream for him to be convinced otherwise. When most people think of the angels at Christmas time, they remember these messengers came to the shepherds and they came to Mary. They often forget that the angelic herald also came to Joseph. And so we're going to think about that a little bit this morning. But would you pray with me before we reflect together on our text? Let's pray. Emmanuel, Lord Jesus, as we wait for you, would you help us to see your glory and your love? Through the reading and through the preaching of your word, we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Well, last week, uh, if you were here, we talked about the mothers of Jesus, the five women listed in Jesus' genealogy, the family tree that begins the Gospel of Matthew. And today, I want to talk about the fathers of Jesus, and I want to do it in three ways. Very quickly, first, I want to dip back into the genealogy. Uh, that text we look at, looked at last week, that family tree of Jesus. I want to dip back in there uh, just at the beginning to make one point. And, and then secondly, I want us to reflect uh, for a minute on the miraculous nature of Jesus' conception. And then third and finally, I want to talk about Joseph, Jesus' adoptive father. All right, so first the genealogy, second the, the miraculous conception, and finally we'll reflect a bit on Joseph's response to all this. So first, though, let's dip back in. If you have your Bible open, it's the very beginning of the New Testament. If not, that's okay. I'll, I'll give you the relevant parts here. But the New Testament begins with a family tree, right? The first 17 verses of the Gospel of Matthew, the first 17 verses of the New Testament begin with a genealogy. And verse 1 is the header to the whole thing. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And we spent a lot of time on this last week, so I won't say too much other than to point out to you, there's a lot of names here. It's a lot of names, 42 names. And that's just the the male participants in this, right? There's five women mentioned. We've talked about those last week, but 42, you know, so-and-so is the father of so-and-so. So a lot of fathers in this story. And as we talked about last week, Matthew is selective in what he includes in the genealogy, so there's even more generations in this family line. And the point is, the thing I want you to hold on to is that God made promises, but it took a long time. It took generations, in fact, for those promises to be fulfilled. 
And the two names that are in the first verse that Matthew uses as the headers for this genealogy, these are the names of two people to whom God made great promises. The son of David, the son of Abraham, right? Both Abraham and David were promised amazing things, great things. Abraham was promised that through his family, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. David was promised that one of his descendants would eventually be the king of kings and the Lord of lords and would sit on his throne forever. His reign would continue on forever. And at Christmas, these promises come true. In Luke's account of all this, the angel comes to Mary and Mary sings in response and she says, he has remembered to be merciful to Abraham just as he promised our ancestors. Christmas is about God keeping his promises. Christmas reminds us that God always keeps his promises. But the promises were a long time coming. It took thousands of years, and for many of those years, it didn't seem like the needle was moving at all in the right direction. In fact, at the time of Christ's birth, it had been 400 years since there had been a prophet in Israel. 400 years of silence from God. And the line of kings had failed They were in exile, and even though now back in the land in the first century, they were subjugated to a foreign power, to the Roman Empire. It wasn't just that things were taking a long time, but it seemed like God had forgotten them altogether. God had left them on their own. But then Jesus is born into the world. In verse 16, it says, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. And that word Christ means Messiah. The Messiah is born. And we're reminded as we read this genealogy to start the New Testament that God, though he may appear to be slow, he never forgets his promises. Christmas reminds us that we cannot judge God on our own timelines. We cannot judge God by our own calendars. He may seem to be working very slowly or not at all, but when his promises come true, and they always come true, they far exceed all that we could imagine. Think of the story of the first Joseph in the Bible, the one for whom the Joseph in our story is named. In the Old Testament, Genesis, uh, for years It seemed like God was ignoring Joseph's prayers. He was betrayed by his brothers. He sold into slavery in Egypt. He made a name for himself, but then he lost it all by being falsely accused of a crime by Potiphar's wife. He's thrown into prison. But in the end, it became clear that God was at work, even in the darkest times, even in those terrible moments. In fact, Joseph is able to say, as for you, he's talking to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. Or think about Jesus. And Jesus at one point is called upon to heal a fatally ill little girl, but he stops and has this conversation with a chronically ill older woman. And he's dilly-dallying, or so it seems. And in the midst of that, Jairus' daughter dies. The timing seems all wrong, but God virtually never works on our time frames. He doesn't follow our agendas. He doesn't work according to our schedules. And when Jesus spoke to the despairing father, Jairus, he simply says, do not fear, only believe. When we impose our time frame upon God, it seems as if he's not keeping his promises. Christmas reminds us he's working to always bring them about. Jesus comes into the world 
to fulfill the promises to Abraham, to fulfill the promises to David. But it's a long genealogy. It's a long story. Israel's history is a long story, but Christmas reminds us that God never forgets to keep his promises. But he rarely does so in the times or in the manner that we would most expect. That's the first thing that I want you to see. But secondly, let's turn our attention to the text that we just read to us. And we'll see the miraculous way that God brings these promises to fulfillment. Right? This happens through a miraculous conception. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. You know, at the world's creation, in Genesis chapter 1, the first chapter in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is there, right? Hovering over the face of the waters. And here at the world's recreation, the world's renewal, the first chapter of the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is here too, this time hovering over Mary, over her womb. And this was no ordinary pregnancy. Matthew says it here in verse 18. The angel tells Joseph again in verse 20 that the life growing inside Mary has not come from any human being. but It's from the Holy Spirit, which means that God is the real father. God is the real father. And this is important because this establishes the divinity of Jesus. He is God come to us. That's why the phrase conceived by the Holy Spirit is in the Apostles' Creed. It's in the Nicene Creed. It's in all the foundational summaries of the Christian faith. And it's right here in the first chapter of the New Testament. And down in verse 23, it explains this even more explicitly. Matthew quotes from the prophet Isaiah. We'll talk about what that name, Emmanuel, means and more significance on, uh, during our lessons and carol service on Christmas Eve. But just very briefly, Matthew tells us what it means here. He gives us the translation of Emmanuel. It means God with us. God with us. Now, for centuries, Jewish leaders had interpreted this, Isaiah chapter 7, as something less than literal. Isaiah, they thought, was prophesying the coming of a great leader through whom, figuratively speaking, God would be present to his people. But Matthew is saying the promise is greater than what anyone else had imagined. The promise came true, not figuratively, but literally. Jesus Christ is God with us because the human life growing within Mary is a miracle performed by God himself. Now you might think, all right, this is the ancient world. Everybody believed this kind of stuff, right? These crazy stories. Actually not, right? Not really. Now, Jews, you might actually be able to say, would have been the least likely people to believe in a story like this. Now, not because of the same reasons we might have our doubts, right? The Jews were not secularists. That is, they didn't object to this story because they didn't believe in the miraculous. They believed that miracles could happen. But Jews were skeptical for a different reason. The Jewish notion of God was that he is so powerful, so majestic, so distinct, so holy, so other, so set apart. They would not even pronounce the name of God, Yahweh, for he was so holy, so different, so unique, so other. Surely this God would not sully himself by taking on human nature. Surely this God would not come into a human womb with all the frailty and all the danger of birth in the ancient world, not to mention the circumstances of this specific birth in a manger among the animals. 
the poorest of circumstances. And yet, this is what the Bible says exactly happened at Christmas. Christ, the Messiah, is God with us, Emmanuel. And Matthew is not the only biblical author to teach this. John, the apostle, says that Jesus Christ is the Word. He was the Word who was never created. Through Him, everything was made. He existed with the Father at the very beginning. And John says the Word then became flesh at Christmas time. John chapter 1. Paul The author of the majority of the New Testament, he says in Colossians 2 that in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The whole fullness of God in Jesus dwells bodily. And Peter, the leader of the early church, writes this in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness, listen to this, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus, according to Peter? Our God and and Savior. The whole of the New Testament authors speak of Jesus being divine, God with us. But you know what? Jesus also spoke of himself this way. He was constantly going about saying he had the power to forgive sins. Who can forgive? Not just sins against him, but all the sins of the world. Who can forgive that? But God alone. He was always saying things like, I'm going to come back and I'm going to judge the world. Who's going to be the king on judgment day? Well, God himself, but Jesus is claiming that mantle as his own. He claimed equality with God. He said at one point that he existed before Abraham, who lived thousands of years earlier. John chapter 8, verse 58, before Abraham was, I am, he says. And in saying this, he's not just claiming to be really, really old, but he's taking the name, the divine name, onto himself in Exodus when Moses asked for God's name. God said, I am who I am. Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Jesus takes that name onto himself. The whole of the New Testament witness teaches us that at Christmas, God came down. And J.I. Packer puts it this way. He said, God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby. Unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this, as is the truth of the incarnation. Some have called the incarnation the supreme miracle of the Christian faith. The supreme miracle of the Christian faith. God coming down. God taking on flesh. Now everybody's path to faith is a little bit different. But once you can believe in the incarnation, it is far easier to accept the rest of the teachings of the New Testament. I mean, if there is a God and he has become human, then why would it be incredible that he would do miracles, that he would pay for the sins of the world, or that he would rise from the dead? His claims about Jesus, the claims that he makes, in fact, for himself, that he's not just a prophet, that he's not a great moral teacher, but that he's God. These provoked extreme reactions in Jesus' own day, and in fact, they should provoke extreme reactions in us as we contemplate them today. I mean, if this is true, 
If this is true, if the Christmas message is true, we have to lay aside everything to follow him. If he really is God, if Jesus really took on flesh and came to rescue us, then there is nothing we should let get in our way as we seek to follow him. But if it's not true, Right, if Jesus is not God, despite his claims, despite what the New Testament says about him, then he can't really be a great teacher. He can't really be a moral leader. Because if he's claiming these things about himself to be God in the flesh, then either he's crazy, right? That's the kind of thing a nut job claims to be God. Or he's being manipulative, he's trying to control his followers. And if either of those things are the case, then he's not a good teacher, he's not a great moral leader. You see, Christmas, the claim of Christmas, that God came down, this is a watershed moment and forces us to make a decision about who we think that he is. We talked about some of the fathers of Jesus in the family tree. We talked about his conception by the Holy Spirit, which means that he is, God is really the father, that he is God in the flesh. But lastly, let's talk about Joseph the adoptive father of Jesus. And by the way, if, if you are adopted, I want you to know that you share a really special part of Jesus' story, right? The Messiah had to come from the royal line of David, right? Uh, that this is all prophesied in the Old Testament that the, the, the Messiah would come from the line of David. Joseph was a son of David. If Joseph does not welcome Jesus into his line, right? The Messiah's lineage doesn't work. The royal line only works because Jesus is welcomed into Joseph's family by adoption. And so if you are adopted, you share something really special with Jesus And if you are adoptive parents, Joseph is a wonderful example of this beautiful calling. It was Jesus' brother, James, one of Joseph's other sons, who would later write in James chapter 1, verse 27, that true religion is defined by the care of orphans and widows. True religion is defined by care for orphans and widows. And Russell Moore in his book on adoption writes this. He wonders, did the image of Joseph linger in James's mind as he inscribed the words of an orphan protecting living faith? Was he thinking about Joseph and the way that he welcomed Jesus? Let's talk a little bit about Joseph this morning. He is kind of an unsung hero in this story. I'm not sure why he gets passed over a lot of the time. It might be because he, he doesn't say much, right? In fact, actually, he doesn't say anything. Did you know that in the New Testament, Joseph never speaks? We have not one word recorded from the father of Jesus. We have not one word from Joseph. Now, he does a number of important things, He obeys the angel and takes Mary to be his wife. He obeys again in the next chapter and flees to Egypt when there's the danger of Herod's murderous threats. He obeys later on when he's instructed to return with the family and settle in the north in Galilee. He does all that obeying, but we don't have any of his words recorded. And maybe that's the point. Frederick Dale Bruner, and I think we have the words here on the screen, go ahead one slide there. Uh, Here's what he says. In every scene, Joseph simply acts without speaking. His speech is to do the will of God. We may call him quiet, Joseph. His hallmark is obedience, 
Prompt, simple, and unspectacular obedience. And in this sense, Joseph gives us one of the clearest examples in all of Scripture of what real righteousness looks like. Without fanfare, right? Without calling attention to himself, prompt, simple, quiet, unspectacular obedience. There's a place in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is critiquing the Pharisees. Pharisees are the religious leaders of the day. And one of Jesus' critiques of the Pharisees is that they are simply too showy, right? They're always drawing attention to themselves. They don't just pray, but they pray publicly and they pray long and they pray loud and they make sure everybody hears their prayers and everybody sees them praying. They don't just fast, but they look all gaunt and beleaguered so that everybody knows the sacrifice they're making, so everybody knows how holy they are, so everybody knows the sacrifices they're making. But Joseph's not like that at all, is he? It's the opposite of what Jesus is critiquing in Matthew chapter 6. If he were alive today, Joseph would not be showy. He would not be building his brand on social media. Prompt, simple, quiet, unspectacular obedience. And verse 19 goes on to describe Joseph as a just man. And the word there is actually the word for righteous. Joseph is a righteous man. Well, how so? How does he show that in our story? Think of the way that he treats Mary. Verse 19, her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, I want you to, just for a moment, put yourself in Joseph's sandals here. Right? At this point, verse 19, the angel has not come to him yet, right? So what is he thinking? What has he believed has happened here? Mary is pregnant. He knows this is not his child. He knows where babies come from. So he concludes the only thing that anybody with any sense could conclude, right? Mary had cheated on him. That's why he's going to give her a certificate of divorce. He's going to put her away. He's hurt. He's betrayed. He's probably angry. What does a righteous person do in a situation like that? Does righteous zeal focus on exposing the sin and shaming the sinner? Not with Joseph. Being a just man, he was unwilling to put her to shame and resolved to divorce her quietly. Joseph could have decided to publicly shame Mary. I mean, after all, that would exonerate him, right? It would make sure that his name was squeaky clean. He didn't have anything to do with this. Might have been, might have felt really good to get back at her. After all, he felt like she had betrayed him. And what would that have been like? What would that public shaming have been? Something probably like what was done to Hester Prynne in the Scarlet Letter, if you've ever read that book. She was made to stand on a platform before the entire village. It was called her public ignominy, it was called. And and then she was made to wear a scarlet letter from then on, a reminder of her sin, the deeds she had done. Maybe actually it would have been worse. Like the woman who committed adultery that they haul out before Jesus in John chapter 8. Remember what they're about to do? They got the stones in their hands. They're ready to execute her. And Jesus says, he who has no sin, 
cast the first stone, do you think he was thinking about, I don't know, but do you think he was thinking about what Joseph could have had done to marry his mother in a situation like that? Joseph is willing, or unwilling rather, to put Mary to shame. He loves his neighbor, you might say. He loves Mary even when he thinks she has done him wrong. He does want the divorce, but he resolves not to do it in a way to hurt her or shame her. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 20. <clears throat> but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So he has this assurance now. He has a word from the Lord. And when he wakes from this dream, though, Joseph still has a choice at this point. And his place in the Christmas story hangs in the balance. What does he do? Well, down in verse 24 and 25, we learn what he does, right? He does what the Lord commands him through the angel, right? He takes Mary as, of his, as his wife. He adopts and raises Jesus as his son, but please, don't misunderstand. This would not have been an easy choice. This kind of obedience from Joseph would have taken courage. I mean, what are all his friends going to think? What is his family going to think? What's the village going to think, right? Joseph, either you slept with her before you were married, or she's a lying cheater and she snowed you over, right? You're being manipulated here. Certainly, that's what others would have said, right? He could have responded, well, let me tell you about the Holy Spirit, you know, but uh, they're not going to believe that, right? If he's to obey the calling of the Lord here, life is going to be hard for him, hard for Mary. To obey the angel's message, it meant the scorn of the world. It meant losing his reputation in the community. It meant a scarlet letter on them, at least in some people's minds. If Joseph was to take Mary as his wife, he would bear the shame for sins he did not commit. And in that sense, he foreshadows the work of his son. Because that is, of course, what Jesus came to do, right? One of the songs that we sing here, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Following Jesus might well mean for you the scorn of the world, at least in some situations, at least in some people's minds. To be associated with Jesus takes courage. But also notice Joseph's obedience here meant surrender to God's will above his own. I mean, what is this whole story for Joseph but God messing with his life? Right? God is meddling with Joseph's life. God is meddling with Joseph's girl. This is not the five-year plan he had drawn up for himself. This is not how he thought things were going to go. But the challenge to Joseph, in some sense, is the challenge to each one of us as we consider in this Christmas season, right? Are we to receive the newborn king? If we are to make room in our hearts, let every heart prepare him room, as the, the carol says, this is the same challenge that comes to us. Are we willing to surrender our will, our agenda, uh, our plans to the will of the Lord? If Jesus comes into your life, it will not be as your assistant, right? If Jesus comes into your life, it will not be as your life coach, you know, to help you get to where you want to be. He comes as king or he comes not at all. And that means his will rules. His will takes precedent. We must follow him. 
we must obey him. Which is why Jesus would later say to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The challenge of Christmas is to surrender your will to the newborn king, the fathers of Jesus. It teaches us that God keeps his promises, but rarely in the timing or in the ways that we would expect. Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us, not just a teacher or a holy man, but God come down, God in the flesh. And like Joseph, our call is to respond to this with the courage of obedience and submission, surrender to the newborn king. So let's take just a moment and be quiet now. Bow our heads. Let's be quiet before the Lord and consider these things. And then I'll pray and then we'll come together to the Lord's Supper. Let's take just a moment of reflection. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.